everyone. Um, all right, so in this podcast, we spoke with Dr. Derek Wilcox, um, and we covered a lot of shit, didn't we? Yeah, so it was a great, <clears throat> I found like another great coach's chat, just talking shop about a lot of things. Um, he's a very smart, smart man. He, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to first get him onto the show is that he tra- translated a Russian Russian manual uh, into English, and it was from a coach that I followed for many many years, um, and uh, he's able to he was able to um, he said they had to translate it a few times, and he was able to make more sense of it because of his background in uh, strength sports. Uh, and sports physiology. So, uh, he, Dr. Derek Wilcox is a you know, very accomplished, very accomplished man. He's um, studied heaps. I got a few. He's, he's got done his PhD in sports physiology and performance, um, and he works with a very well recognized uh, group of experts. Renaissance periodization. Um, I did a bit of work with them uh, about a year or two ago. Uh, and they are brilliant at what they do. Um, in this podcast, we cover programming. We covered competition peaking, equipped lifting, for, uh, uh, velocity based training, grip strength as an indicator of fatigue. Um, talked about some of the comparisons and findings of the Russian sports scientists and American sports scientists and how a lot of their conclusions were pretty much exactly the same. So it was a uh, pretty much saying an unintentional double blind kind of study that two experienced scientists were able to figure out the exact same, exact same thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. It was really good one. All right. Uh, Enjoy guys. Enjoy. All right, we're off and running. All right, so it's Dr. Derek Wil- Wilcox, right? Yes. So um, you're from Renaissance Periodization, and yes. uh, what got you started with what got you started with them? Or how did you start? Well, with most them? most folks have heard of Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike Ezertel. Yes, he's uh, really spearheaded a lot of our marketing and done really well with that. And I actually met him in 2007. Mm-hmm. While I was getting my undergrad at Appalachian State University, he was getting his master's there. And of course, we were very like-minded people, both into exercise science and competing. And he was much more on the bodybuilding side, for sure, than I was. And I was, you know, really just starting to catch stride in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. So I think I had, I was still in the 165 class then, and I had just squatted 700 pounds for the first time. So that's, that was kind of our introduction to each other. Yeah. And you've recently squatted a thousand pounds, right? Lightest to squat. Yes, that was actually six years ago, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah, I've been very shocked that. Yeah. yeah, Well, I I try to bring those things up because I can't do half of that now. (laughs) Um, So, what got you started in, I guess, coaching? I mean, what what's your story behind wanting to? Well, you you specialize was it sports physiology? Is yes, it? my PhD is in sport physiology and performance. Okay, what was your what was your thesis on? 
So my, well, my dissertation for the PhD was on para powerlifting. It was a case study. Okay. I've been working with a disabled powerlifter for five years, and we decided to take a lot of athlete monitoring measures through the entire um, meet training cycle, which was about six months. Mm-hmm. So we were able to look at the trends in his fatigue and recovery and ability to perform. We looked at uh, grip strength tests and bench press velocity tests. Oh, cool. And we were able to see all the, when he felt like crap, basically all those numbers went down when he was recovered, when he was supposed to be recovered, uh, all those measures went back up, but it's something incredibly useful for coaches because, you know, we all have a coach's eye. You can see when things are going well, when they're not, Mm -hmm. but it always helps to have that backup of data to where you're actually measuring exactly what's happening and Sometimes, you know, maybe you're not on your game. You didn't sleep good the night before and your, your perception is not what it should be. Mm-hmm. It's always good to have those measures to say, okay, well, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to this. Maybe I'm missing something. And it all goes to the benefit of the athlete at that point. So disabled or able-bodied, same principles there. So this so, is using velocity tracking as well? Yes. We're using, Accelerometry. We're you using other measures as well. Like you said, you were tracking grip. Were they, were they measuring anything in particular? as well in terms uh, well, of it was a, a grip strength test and one of the reasons we use grip as a, a monitoring method is the hands are super innervated they're some of the most innervated places on the entire body mm-hmm. simply because of all the sensory uh perceptions that we have there the fingertips you know there's tons and tons of nerves there but when you have more central fatigue or central nervous system fatigue it shows up a ton in your grip so we okay, were actually able to look at the little bit of a different trend, same trend overall, but the timing was a little bit different. It seemed like the nervous system would actually fully recover a few days before you would have systemic recovery mm-hmm. compared to the bench press test. How quick would that yeah. fatigue be, um, that onset would be, the onset of that fatigue well, from and, and well, showing we, your grip? We measured everything right before he would start his training session. So we had a standardized protocol for the warmups and we would go into the testing from there. Then he would do his workout. So the very next session, which was usually two days later, we would see if it was a really heavy session, we would see dramatic drop-offs, especially in his grip strength, just from that central nervous system fatigue. And then the bench press velocity uh, would also dip and show the same kind of fatigue. Interesting. Have you used grip? strength as an indicator no, that's why i'm kind of intrigued um would you say it grip can fatigue and, and say um it said if the central nervous system fatigue in a meet face say from from squats all the way to get to deadlift and have grip issues at the like when you once you get to a deadlift or oh for sure yeah there's okay. there's an, an immediate onset of fatigue there uh but normally you have so many other compensating hormones fluctuating mm-hmm. that are stress related. Yeah. You know, you, adrenaline is going to be bigger on meat day as well. Mm-hmm. As long as you basically don't shoot your wad during squats and bench press, because we usually feel like crap by the time deadlift rolls around, mm-hmm. um, you're still going to have that, you know, stress oriented, you know, meat day competition mindset that still pumps out those hormones. That your grip's mostly going to be there still, unless mm-hmm. something dramatic happens. I don't think I've ever held a third, finished a third attempt, third attempt deadlift. Really? Ever. Always lose my grip. It's always, it's always the case right at the end. Even though I might hold, be able to hold that grip in, in training, but yeah, it's been like this for freaking, it's like freaking 10 years. It's the most frustrating thing in, in sure. a meet when I'm coming in 
know I'm coming in close to what I need to need to hit, and I just can't freaking finish that deadlift. I don't even know gotcha. what I don't even know what how much of that is even psychological. Like I'm thinking I've yeah. dropped it so many times. I'm like, oh, you just think this is what's going to happen. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I had that happen once, and that was because tape ripped on my thumb because I was always hook gripping for mm. a long time. Uh, but aside from that, it was definitely me just not being able to lift the weight. <laughs> mm. I got too small of a hands, like they're freaking tiny. I tried. Yeah, I, tried. I assumed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tried hook grip for a, for quite some for, for a while ago. Like I tried nearly for like six months to do hook grip. I just could never go over. I don't think I could ever go over two hundred kilos. It was just like the pain I would get would be so excruciating. I just yeah yeah wow. couldn't think to couldn't seem to spread my thumb far enough to get yeah. enough surface on it. I, I guess you guys are you've at least heard of Pocket Hercules, Naim Sulaimanalu, the weightlifter from Turkey slash Bulgaria. Sounds familiar, but I can't put a face to it. No. Yeah, he was under five feet tall and was breaking all-time world records when he was 16 or so, 15, mm, in like Olympic world records. Yeah. And um, he was absolutely tiny, and his hook grip was literally just getting his his index finger on his thumbnail, it seemed like. His hands were so tiny. Yeah, but he was also – thumb look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably not pretty, but um, – he was an incredibly gifted guy regardless though. Mm. So I like to use him as an example of even though people with tiny hands can use it, but when you have a really thick, meaty hand, that, that does change it a lot. Oh, the, see, that's, that's me. Oh, well, I was about to say yeah. that. If you look at Gus's hands, the small, but he's got like serious meat on there. <laughs> right, right. Mm. <laughs> Makes it tough. Yeah. Um, all right. So you've been with, you've been with RP since the, since their beginning or? Uh, shortly after I started working with him in 2014. Okay. I'm interested, um, being a businessman myself interested, like how does that, how does that system work for you guys? So you have a lot of people on your team. Is this like, yeah. he's the marketing side of things and it's commission based or is it like, um, it's uh, honestly the economic side of it is brilliant to me because I think a lot of us are very, free market capitalist libertarian oriented yeah. at least you know it's just kind of the circles that we've been in forever and basically all the coaches are subcontractors or independent contractors mm -hmm. we all work toward a common goal but we have our own responsibilities and there's still some competition here and there um you know if you have a better or more um oh, what's the word recognizable name a lot of people specifically request you as a coach and mm. RP does all this incredible marketing and the products that we're able to work together and put out really helps all the transformation stories. And, you know, most of the time the clients are doing the marketing for us because they have incredible results. Mm. So they, they handle that side of it. We handle the kind of meat and potatoes of the coaching and we also work toward projects as well. Mm. Interesting. So you, so subcontracting in a way that like, is it that are you, is it like paying them an ongoing fee and they provide, provide you clients or is it, uh, it's, I guess you could call it profit sharing in a way, whatever sharing. comes in, we, um, we have our splits depending on whatever deal was made and they take their share and we keep our share and everybody's happy. The more money everybody makes, the more money everybody makes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what are you doing with your coaching at, at, um, at the moment? I mean, where do you take, where are you taking yours? Are you like coaching out of your, because you have a, I think you have a home gym 
right? You train out of your own yes. shed. Is yes. that where you train your clients For, as well? Uh, I actually only have one person I work with in like one-on-one in person right now. Okay. And he is a, he's a mixed martial artist that trains at the MMA school that I train jujitsu at. Mm. Are you all online now pretty much? Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Has that COVID uh, pushed one, that that way a bit more? Uh, well, I've been purely online for several years now. Mm. Um, okay. Yep. Do, 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 do you find any negatives with that? Well, my my original coaching, especially during my master's and PhD, because that was required in our programs, uh, day one, you're tossed into coaching. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the reason I got into coaching was that one-on-one interaction with being able to um, really directly help people. And technique fixes, of course, are going to be a lot quicker one-on-one in person. But I'm able to do the same thing, or at least close to it online. It just takes a few more sessions to get the same things accomplished. Yeah, I think I found I found the same thing where you might be able to address, you know, two or three or four things in a in a one-on-one session. I kind of focused on one thing at a time. Yeah. Until I get video feedback or whatever feedback I need. Yeah, um, exactly. Still get the, the same. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the pros for that though is a lot of times I'll send video breaking down what the client is doing in their technique and then show them what they should be doing. So instead of it just being a one-on-one interaction, that's, you know, once it's over, it's over. Hopefully you remember it, right. Mm. They actually have the video there to reference back to whenever they want. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I, I, I found that useful personally because mm. Gus has been coaching me. Um, and I, I'm always going back to the old, old videos where you've broken it down because it, it is hard to transfer it. Especially if you're like, mm-hmm. if you're not full time, you know, and you've got a busy life and stuff, and then you've got, you know, your two hour window to train or whatever you get there. I mean, if you're professional, you can go over it again and again and again, but it's really good to have something to reference. Do you find some of the things that might be a bit more frustrating, like things that require a little bit more hands on when like solving a, a more difficult, difficult problem? Well, the only. The big hurdles to me are doing the weightlifting movements and weightlifting derivatives or Olympic lifting is yeah, so like everybody be. calls it now. Yeah. Um, everything's so technical with those. Yeah. You can't just write a little blurb down in an email and say, okay, fix this. Um, you definitely have to make videos for those and break everything down. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit more tedious, but even in person, it's going to be more tedious as well. Mm. So I think that's probably the more difficult part of doing the online coaching. I love doing it though, because I love breaking down everything on those videos mm. and the intricacies and all the leverage points. And that's the nerdy stuff that I get really get off on. Yeah. Um, I use, uh, I'm a, uh, you might, I might use something similar, but I use a uh, coach's eye. Have you used coach's eye? I have. Yeah. 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 I, I find like that one. That's the one I use with you. You better slow, right. slow the, things down, reverse the, the annotations. Yeah. 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 I find it really useful, really useful. Um, and clients love it too. They love that type of feedback. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's in some ways easier to see yourself rather than being, it's a weird way of putting it, but rather than being in your own body and somebody giving you an example face to face, it does make it much easier to see yourself and see how you're doing the movement mm. to, to actually get a context for it. Sometimes you, and previously you feel like you're doing everything right, but what it looks like from the outside is completely different, right? So it's, it is good for me to see what I'm doing wrong. 
Definitely. That's why I've always made a habit. Um, always getting my clients and even obviously myself are always video recording what we do because everything always feels either, you know, sometimes I feel hypersensitive to when I'm lifting. Like I, sometimes I feel like that felt really horrible and take a video, but it's actually like pretty good or the other way around. Um, right. Yeah. Um, back to what you were saying before, I just uh, was thinking about you did, you were tracking velocity with your research in the bench press. Um, so I've recently taken up, or my recent, probably the last few years, doing a lot more velocity-based training with a lot of my um, powerlifting athletes, and I'm probably interested. Like, is that something you still do with athletes, or is that just during that during the research? I would definitely do it with athletes if they have accelerometers, or you know, basically if the technology is there and available. Mm. It's um, it really takes the guesswork out of reps in reserve or RPE ratings or anything like that. Mm -hmm. As long as you have an athlete that is consistently giving a maximal effort or intent yeah. while they're lifting and lifting as fast as they can, uh, technique always being the prerequisite there, uh, you don't have to guess really on how many reps they have left. You're going to have a really good idea. Mm. So this is tracking, you're tracking if like their velocity, like velocity loss in a, in a set to see what kind of things they have left. Yeah, when you uh, you have a standardized test, especially uh, the beginning of a set, that first rep is really going to give you an idea of what their potential is. Mm -hmm. um, they have a set percentage that they can move at you know one and a half meters per second, which is really fast. Um, then you know that they're going to be either really strong compared to a normal day, or you just get an idea of how they're feeling. And then the last rep of a set is the one that really gives you how much they have left in the tank. Mm -hmm. based on the velocity mm. yeah i found um i found it pretty pretty interesting i think I, I applied it with one of our athletes probably about actually just before covid and it was unfortunate because i didn't get i had put two athletes using using velocity based training and we got some remarkable remarkable results with it um one of our girls she's already really strong i think at the time when she hit her last total she was like the sixth strongest in the country um Oh, in the world, sorry, not the country. Um, she was the strongest in Australia, um, sixth strongest in the world. And she, at the time, had a 230 kilo, 230 kilo squat. And we managed to get that with using, actually, over two years, we only managed to put five, 10 kilos on it. No, five kilos. And then in a period of five months using velocity-based training, we ended up taking up to 257 kilos. Oh, wow. Yeah, she got... Crazy strong. Which is huge. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And it was that that feedback being able to constantly adjust. So there was like days where she was really good. So we were able to throw on quite a bit of an extra weight and then some days not. So I think that recovery response your response to recovery and also maximizing stimulus, I guess. In a yes, way. Definitely. And mm. it really does something for the athlete as well. Because if you start digging into the velocity based research, you can give target velocity ranges and adjust those based on who your athlete is and how they usually perform. Um, but if you give them a minimum velocity that they have to stay above or they have to stop the set, you'll start seeing them pushing harder to make sure that they're moving the weight fast enough. Mm. And you have an increased intent, which means more neural drive to the muscles. The stronger the neural drive, the more apt they are to develop type 2 and type 2X muscle fibers, which is the more explosive ones. Mm -hmm. And if you have a chronic 
series of doing that and training, you have an accumulated effect of much more explosive training, much more power, force, just consistently being entered in as a stimulus. And the adaptations to that really start adding up like you're talking about. Well, it's just Newton's basic Newton law, Newton's laws, isn't it? All right, yeah. Mass acceleration. <laughs> it's, it's weird how it could all just be tracked back to science, right? It's like... Um, it's very easy to, um, when you have a set of 10, to try and use the least amount of effort that you need to to accomplish the set of 10 with whatever weight you have. Mm, yeah, but when of you have velocity goals, you have to move fast. You actually have to put in maximal effort or at least somewhere close to that to make sure that you're still as explosive and creating enough output to justify what you're doing. So, so it's great for the athletes. Yeah. So I, I, I also gave them like their target, their target load, a target range that they should be, should be hitting. And so when they're not hitting it, that's when they start to change their intent behind their training or they'll go <laughs> right. away, come back. It's like, nah, I can got this. I can hit this. And so mm-hmm. instead of just having that lazy, ugly rep, they end up performing really well. Yeah, in team settings, you also have competition that pops up. Mm. If everybody's using something close to the same weight or the same percentage, you know, you'll see one guy that, especially if you have displays on a squat rack where people can see what the other people are doing, like, okay, well, that guy just lifted it, you know, half a meter per second. I better get 0. 0.6. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know a lot of teams, um, team-based sports do it over, um, over there in the, in the States. We had, um, we had one of the guys from... Jim Aware, are you, you know, you know, familiar with Jim Aware? Oh, uh, somewhat, yeah. I've never used uh, their products really, but I'm familiar. Yeah, um, yeah. He says they they sell a lot to their to their teams, don't they? It's mostly um, NFL and college teams, I think. Mm. College football yeah. teams. They do a lot of team based team yep. based stuff, and then a lot of competitions within there. Same thing with kind of what you're saying, but yep. they always judge their load on the day. So it's like they'll come in, see what speeds they're moving up, and then the coach would. Uh, set their loads for the day uh, for training. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Well, that, that, I mean, really the athlete monitoring I did in my dissertation kind of gives you the same feedback. You know, if you need to put, if you can push a little harder than normal, or if you're most likely not going to hit what you would think the athlete could hit that day, depending mm. on all kinds of different stuff. But um, actually one really cool thing that I've picked up from velocity based measures we actually had the Chinese biomechanist from the Chinese weightlifting team mm-hmm. come over for coaches college several years ago at this point, four or five. And uh, they're actually using that technology through video capture to help the coaches select attempts on the platform in competition. Oh, crazy. Holy shit. Yeah. So they're the coach is obviously going to be watching and the coach's yeah. eyes basically you know, they're incredibly uh, wise and mm-hmm. watching their lifters. They see them lift every day. They know what it's supposed to look like and if it's moving well, if it's not. Mm. But then they also get the measure of how fast the bar moved on the platform. As long as that matches the coach's eye, they trust what they saw. But if it doesn't, you know, they might adjust down, adjust up. But even in training, they're measuring the same thing and they know exactly what the slowest bar speed is. Mm-hmm that the lifter can lift and still get under and make the lift. So mm. that's how they're gauging what they have left on the platform. So, so that, sorry, they're doing this in competition. But with video. But, but they're just calibrating the video to the distance yes. and make, 
Yep. That's next level. Which is super it? easy to do. You can do it with free software like Canovia. I've used yeah, that okay. for years and years. Wow. Yep. Um, one thing I have found with velocity-based training is that I, with is still trusting, like, like you were saying before, as, as a backup data, but still always trusting mm-hmm. the coach's instinct because I found sometimes the data became a little bit not overwhelming, just sometimes influencing some of the decisions where I maybe I sh- maybe shouldn't have made those choices, even though my instinct right. was telling me something else. Have you found something similar sometimes when like cluttered and too much data? It can be. Uh, you really have to understand your variables and mm. how they're being collected reliability-wise. And of course, in research, we have very, very strict protocols to where if you're, if you're going to measure velocity through something like Canovia, through a video camera, you need to have a standardized practice of exactly down to the centimeter, how far away that camera is from the barbell every single time. Mm. And that has to be the same or your, your reliability measure is going to be a little bit off and you won't be able to trust it quite as much. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times that's where sports scientists comes in. Mm-hmm. You really need to not just know how to get data, but know how to interpret it and also know how, to collect it reliably in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, the uh, device device I use is the the Gymaware. They use a te- they use a tether. Basically, they said it took out right. a lot of um, took out a lot of error. Um, but uh, you said you haven't used it before, but I found it pretty pretty good. Yeah, I mean the the uh, oh, what are they called? It's not a potentiometer. Maybe it is. We've used those quite a bit, but not that specific brand. It's like a Tendo unit, right? Mm. Um, yeah, it's just a little box with a tether. Yeah, it's the same deal. Mm. Um, those have actually been really good and reliable, but one thing that you have to worry about is bar shift left and right, or you know, up and down on different sides, uh, especially if you have a lifter that favors one way or the other. Yeah, I did. Uh, I put. The, I decided to put two on one bar and differently was different on one mm-hmm. side than the other. Yeah. Yep. Mm. That's one of the nice things about the accelerometers that we can put on the bar, especially now uh, with push their 2.0 accelerometer. You can stick it right on the bar, actually really close to the middle, mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry about that variance at all. Oh, interesting. Maybe you can put the tether in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> it might be a little bit tricky. <laughs> yeah, wrap around the neck, maybe. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe if somebody has a lip piercing, you can just yeah. put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so one thing I've been, um, I've always been a big fan of, uh, Rush, Russian methodology or Bar- well, the way Boris Shako does his training. Right. And I think when I first started powerlifting, that was kind of the main programs we were doing. Um, it was still fairly new here in Australia when we, when we were doing it. So there wasn't too much as there is with the amount of information there is about powerlifting there is today. And um, so we, we followed his stuff for about four, about you know, three, four years um, with some awesome results, but then also some brutal injuries and crazy fati- levels yes. of fatigue and, and um, definitely hard to balance his that, methods. That's, that's the reputation, isn't it, that you get, the fatigue is insane. Mm. And then this one I noticed, uh, he, his, book, his book came out. I've been waiting for his book for forever. Um, or to be translated, and notice that your name 
was on it. So you would be quite familiar with his, I guess, practices, <laughs> would you say? Well, I definitely spent many, many, many hours going over the uh, documents. Mm. They, it was translated in steps, and I actually took Russian in my undergrad, so that's why I was on that project. Uh, Mike Ezertel, of course, is from Russia, so he, he speaks plenty of Russian himself. Mm. But um, we, we had to take it in stages, basically, from one of... Um, Boris's understudies who spoke pretty good English for a Russian and he translated as best he could. Mike and I really tried to put it in terms to where our demographics in America and the English speaking world could understand it mm -hmm. because you would come up with really strange translations like, um, like a, if they were doing a, talking about a chest fly, they called it the cultivation of hands. <laughs> oh, nice. You'd have like really weird stuff like that. And I would have to go through and fix it and first figure out what the hell they were talking about. Mm. But then, you know, it was, it was pretty wild to see what really popped up in those translations. But I definitely got to spend a lot of time going through all his methods and really making a lot of sense out of it, mm -hmm. putting it into English. And actually my favorite part of that book was him going over the previous hundred years in sports science in Russia and also the Western world and combining a lot of the theories and talking about who came up with what and how all those things came to be in the, uh, in the current model of the information that's out there. He even talked about my uh, primary professor, Dr. Stone, coming up with the Western version of block periodization essentially, while Yuri Verkashansky was also working in the Soviet Union doing the exact same thing but they were double blind. They, you know, Dr. Stone didn't speak Russian. I don't know if Dr. Verkashansky spoke any English, but they were publishing in different languages, mm. but they were coming to the same conclusions. It was really cool. What were some of the, what were some of the similarities in that specifically? Damn like, near the same things. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. Uh, they were, you hear about Verkashansky's Accumulation phase, mm -hmm. which is the same thing as Dr. Stone's general preparation phase. It's basically bodybuilding type work mm -hmm. where you're introducing a lot of volume, increasing work capacity, things like that. Verkashansky's uh, transmutation phase is kind of halfway between the super heavy work and the hypertrophy work is the fives, you know, five to eight rep area. Um, sometimes the threes are in, involved in that as well but that was Dr. Stone's specific preparation phase. The, the execution seems to be a little bit different though. Like, I mean, I, I'm, cause I'm quite familiar with the, the program side of things, probably a lot, lot less mm -hmm. about the theory side of it. Was it one of those cases where it's like the, the theory, oh, the research was very similar, but the execution and the programming was different or? or were there, they... there are different subtleties to it for sure. Mm -hmm. um, they both came from, very similar backgrounds in weightlifting as well. I think it was Dr. Ferkashansky that was using grip uh, testing protocols in Soviet Union with the weightlifters as well, if my memory serves correct. But that's where I actually got the idea for my dissertation from. That's cool. But Interesting. They were all thinking athlete monitoring. They were thinking different phases. And then they were waving intensities inside the individual blocks for fatigue management. All those concepts were the same but they were coming up with them completely on the other ends of the earth, not speaking the same languages. And to me, that's one of the coolest things that ever happened in sports science. Yeah, that's awesome. It's mind blowing, isn't it? Mm. Um, would, would, what would you say you've learned from 
that, those translations or translating his his work? Well, the emphasis on practicing uh, the specific techniques for competition. He does that so, so much. And you can really tell that he's heavily influenced by the weightlifting side of things mm -hmm. where you're constantly working on technique. But I think it's, it might be a little bit of overkill as far as practicing the powerlifting techniques, just mm -hmm. because there's so much less technical to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. There are less pieces, mm -hmm. parts moving, I guess, in those movements mm -hmm. since they're completely static. Um, and uh, like you talked about, the injuries that come along from the crazy volumes that are involved, uh, the fatigue management might not be the best in those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. But all those programs that he put out were very individualized to specific lifters. You know, the Shaco number, whatever yeah, that you well, look up program-wise, it was for somebody. Yeah. And he usually had an idea of what they could do and what they couldn't do. So, yeah, we would always... We remember being told that that they were at least um, designed some of them specifically. So we'll kind of try and pick out the parts that would be specific to an individual's weakness and would adjust it for ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. But there's definitely one thing I took on from their program. Like I've, 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 I've you know, I would say mine. I guess a bit of a hybrid of multiple, I guess multiple methods I've picked up. I mean, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and try to you know, find the best tool for each individual. But I've definitely kept a lot of what they've done, especially the, some of the skills, a lot of the skill practice in what Absolutely. they do and accumulating volume in that way, in that sense, rather than always having... Because I found... Um, I've worked with a few coaches and I found a lot of them... That, that, that bit's missed sometimes. And mm -hmm. I found when I was doing that type of... The, uh, the Russian program, as brutal as it was, it actually made us, made us crazy good at competing um mm -hmm. rather than strong in the gym and i found my competitions you know over the years i don't know if this is correlation or not but my skill on, on the platform is definitely not as i would say as proficient as i felt as it was back then but even there are a lot of variables to account for because that was a very long time ago um and things have certainly changed today but i used to have their their compensation or their super compensation effect seemed to be pretty incredible if done if done right um, correct yeah the uh, the taper is an incredibly powerful thing and it's really what for the only time of an entire training cycle it allows you to become the athlete you were training to be mm -hmm. at no other point in the training cycle should you be as strong as you're going to be on that competition day because mm -hmm. that's just not the way training cycles are supposed to work mm -hmm. that's definitely a, a distinct difference that they mm -hmm. had that they, their testings were done four to five weeks out Compared no. to compared to what you get a lot now, one to two weeks, maybe three weeks if you're lucky for some some of the other programs, but that's definitely something I've taken from from them as well. Is that uh, comparatively to a lot of people, how I see a lot of coaches program here in Australia, that a lot of them are testing about a week, maybe two if they're very elite. But I've always tend have a tendency to push them out to push them out to three, following some of the concepts that that I have seen in their programs, but. I've never, again, like I said, I've never really learned the theory behind what they've done. I've kind of just, everything I do know, I kind of look at their program and been able to see, you know, what they've done here. Um, yeah. That's exactly where athlete monitoring comes in, though. Mm -hmm. Because when you have your overreach in a meet peaking cycle in the last block or so, that going into a competition, you see all those measures dip down when they're lifting the heaviest and you know exactly when that supercompensation effect occurs. Mm -hmm. I actually showed that in my dissertation as well.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been that's been I've definitely been finding having ha- like I guess kind of putting the pieces together a little bit more with everything I've learned when I've applied velocity based training. You can kind of start to you, you kind of overlay it in your mind with all the graphs you see in all the textbooks about how the mm-hmm. fatigue and compensation effect works, and it's like. Now we know why you're so strong on this day and not so strong on this day, and um, mm-hmm. it's been it's been good because now we're all about to, a few of my guys are about to come into competition now, and you can see that those velocities are starting to starting to really drop off when they're getting heavy, but we're not letting them recover and at this stage. But we've we've seen what a deload does does for them, and it seemed right. to be you know very significant. So we end up you end up we end up finding very individual ways of I guess peaking for each for each person using. Yeah, if you've measures. got the measures, you can you can really dial that in for each individual athlete. Mm, yeah, it's pretty cool. <clears throat> so, um, what uh, what are, I guess what are some other things that you've found with I guess some of the Russian methodologies compared to um, American style or American methodology? Well, one of the things that you uh, probably the biggest grain of salt that you have to take with those methodologies and other methodologies as well is the culture behind it. Uh-huh. Sometimes the okay. methods might be obscured to a certain extent, depending on where those people are competing at, what the culture is as far as anabolics or uh, performance enhancing drugs are. There are all kinds of crazy methods that come out of camps where the, the PEDs are really prevalent and you can do all kinds of stuff training wise and, not manage your fatigue and you know all, all kinds of basic laws and physiology that you have to follow if you're using those things that won't show up as a detriment mm-hmm. in regards to how you perform and the training that you're going through you can just train heavy all the time for a long time until something snaps off the bone because you don't you don't even really have the ability to perceive that fatigue that's built, been building up for weeks and weeks and weeks so that's always something you have to kind of consider. Can you go through something like, you know, the crazy volumes of Shaco or, you know, the super high intensity stuff from West side or really any crazy high volume type program without the addition of those kinds of things. And if you don't have the genetics to go through high volume training anyway, you know, maybe that stuff's not for you because it's just not long-term sustainable and you end up getting injured. So I try to remind people of that a lot. Because you you just have to add in that big grain of salt. Yeah, that <clears throat> obviously that that does make a big does make a big difference. Um, yeah, we you you were saying a couple of podcasts ago that you've had a lot of success with your stronger athletes reducing volumes, reduced volume. Um, yeah, actually, that's something I picked up with all the velocity based. Velocity based training is like actually doing a lot, doing a, being actually getting away with less work because you're seeing progress, you know, week to week or block mm. to block, and realizing like we actually don't need to do as much because these velocities are increasing session, you know, session to session or block to block, and um, finding these like well, we really don't need to increase volume too much more because what we're doing right now keeps progressing and seems to be progressing faster. Yes, um, for sure. You have to think uh, in relative terms there. And I assume you're talking about your stronger athletes as in, yeah. you know, a, a 90 kilo versus another 90 kilo lifting more 
relative strength, correct? Yeah. Right. So if you think about the accumulated fatigue effect or damage to the muscle tissue, uh, if you have one 90 kilo lifter that is lifting, you know, a hundred kilos more than another 90 kilo lifter, and they have around the same lean body tissue, you know, muscle tissue overall, the person who's lifting more doesn't have more tissue than the other person. So the accumulated damage is going to be more severe because of the increased load, mm -hmm. even if they're better at lifting it. So you end up with somebody who's lifting a, more, a bigger relative load, accumulating fatigue faster, even though their outputs are higher. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's something I really had to learn late in my career. Um, as far as my training goes, because I was you know, squatting over five times my body weight for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't sustain any kind of normal, you know, three sets of three or five sets of five or something like that, because my output was good and it kept getting better. But me trying to increase volumes just beat me up so much to the point where I couldn't recover properly. And it started throwing off that uh, stimulus fatigue recovery wave or cycle. It's remarkable how much <clears throat> I've seen a change where like, you know, you have your younger athletes like doing what five sets of five or even up to you know eight sets of something and um you know I, i'm gassed after like what, two or three sets of doubles or singles depending on the uh, the intensity but this last prep was probably one of my best preps i did but the volume was remarkably remarkably low i think uh, in the last like three or four weeks we're just doing singles and doubles for no more than anywhere between two and four sets like four sets of singles or two sets of two sets of doubles but <clears throat> had a significant impact on my performance even though even though it was such low volume we definitely felt even felt the fatigue from that because i mean i'm squatting a lot bigger numbers now than i was obviously many years ago so every um every time you squat seems to be a almost a the whole competition in itself because it seems to take freaking forever and the preparation to get yourself ready just for four sets yeah definitely that that's actually a big difference between uh, weightlifting and powerlifting it seems like a lot of really good weightlifters can handle more volume than other mm. weightlifters who aren't as good but in powerlifting i think the absolute intensities are so much higher and stressful on the body that the stronger people don't need as many sets and reps because their outputs are already so much higher and the damage accumulated is so much higher compared to you know something that you have to be explosive with versus maximal force. They're completely different ends of the curve. Could, could there be an aspect of um, differences in technique there as well? Because obviously the, 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 the differences in efficiency of technique in weightlifting will be potentially wider than in powerlifting because they're much more complex movements. Therefore, a much more efficient lifter will therefore be able to go through a lot more volume in comparison to somebody. Does, does that make sense? Could that be an aspect there? Potentially. I think the biggest variables involved there are the competition movements, at least for them, aside from, you know, catching, you know, a front squat or something like mm. that. And even then it's not like a normal front squat or an overhead squat. Yeah. There's no really centric phase that's completely loaded in a weightlifting movement. Mm. It's mostly concentric. And since the a vast majority of the damage that accumulates during an exercise is on the eccentric phase, they're not experiencing as much of that either. Uh, oh, the, the absolute load is also going to be quite a bit lower as well, since you're not going to be doing a clean or a snatch with something that you 
can't deadlift. No, of course. So yeah. it's an absolute intensity issue there too. What about with uh, <clears throat> what about with uh, with equipped? I mean, how much? I, I don't know too much about equipped. Uh, is that like we have a few equipped lifters? I've played around with it a little bit. Um, are you still going through the same eccentric, uh, I guess, stress, um, or how much of the suit is doing the eccentric load? A really cool thing that we learned at App State, we actually did a study on squat suits, mm. and we had EMG hookups on the muscles uh, used. It was hamstring, low back, and vastus lateralis on the quad. Mm. And what we saw was kind of what I had expected. I don't know if, how many people would really studied it as much as I had or obsessed over it over the years, <laughs> trying to get competitive advantages. But the suit basically acts like another set of hip extensors, which would be glutes and hamstrings primarily. Mm -hmm. And with lighter loads, the hamstrings, even if the low back was still in the proper position, keeping tension in the hamstrings like that, there were skill specific motor patterns that would allow the hamstrings specifically to relax a little bit in order to get a lighter weight down to depth in a squat suit. Whereas when you don't have the squat suit on, the tension and the output from the hamstrings would be much higher. But it's a specific skill learned by an equipped lifter to get down to depth without completely locking up. So by the point where you get higher in intensities, it actually ends up being very, very similar to an unequipped squat with all the muscle activity, but it's a skill learn to where you can get lower intensity weights down to basically you know your pecs would do the same thing on a bench press and a bench press shirt as well you can actually watch if you have somebody with a, a low cut bench press shirt they're lowering and you can actually see the pecs intermittently firing whereas normally they would just be contracted the entire time and super tight mm. but you can actually see specific motor patterns especially if they're lean it's pretty wild to watch you would say uh, your muscles very, act. You say your muscles acting more to, as a stabilizer and con, and control rather than. It's it's still a form of force development, but it is a form of stabilizing as well. But on the concentric, everything turns back on 100 percent, just like it's a normal lift. Mm -hmm. But it's very skill specific motor patterns involved with equipped lifting. That would be completely different to raw, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Uh, most of the time when raw people get into equipment for the first time, even with weights that they would, uh, an equipped lifter would be able to get down, raw lifters are you know, super tight and they don't know how to inhibit that muscle contraction to a certain amount to allow themselves to go through the full range of motion or get down to depth in a squat. You just feel like you lock up completely. It's so just super awkward. So a strong raw lifter doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good equipped. Not all, right. in all There's, cases, I guess. Right. And we, I think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, most of the, the consistently raw lifters that I've seen that compete without equipment, uh, they get into equipment and they don't like it because it hurts. And that's perfectly fine. There's definitely an, an investment versus reward in that regard. And the investment's pretty steep because it's not like you just put on the equipment and the numbers go up. Mm -hmm. There's always an equal and opposite reaction we know mm -hmm. about from physics. Mm -hmm. So all that force is going somewhere and it's being relayed through your body one way or another. It doesn't make the weight feel any lighter and it doesn't mean that it's less stressful on you either. Mm -hmm. Do you think a lot, you, would you find a lot of a, equipped lift is um, not doing enough raw work with the 
with that style of training? That's 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 real case by case. Now there are plenty of equip lifters that don't practice in the equipment enough, mainly because it's hurt. It hurts and it's awkward, and so you see really both ends of it mm-hmm. for sure. Cool. Um, I guess another like another question about I think we wonder was quite interested in because we did a little bit of work with nutrition. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how long ago it was. At a year or two years almost. No, about a Something year, like year and a half. Yeah, um, it's quite a unique approach to to the way you guys diet break it into, I guess, instead of macros, more into category categories that mm-hmm. have various their own kind of individual value. Where like you had a carbohydrate, was it your or your what do you call it? So there's good car would you call them good carbs simple carbs healthy carbs yeah yeah healthy carbs moderate to high glycemic index carbs and then training carbs which are super sugary things like powdered gatorade or kool-aid or mm. you know basically candy mm-hmm. so what's the idea behind that i guess that style compared to a lot of what we we've seen with with i guess diet and standard dieting practices well it's it's interesting that you think that it's and it does come across this way to a lot of people as it's unique or something special. And to us, it's not unique or special at all. We're literally just going by the research that's available. Mm-hmm. And it's, we're going by what's been consistently shown in research to work the best as far as performance and sport. And it, it feels like the norm to basically everybody on our coaching staff, because we're always seeing it. But when you bring it out into the general population and in the grand fitness world of, you know, crazy gimmick diets and mm-hmm. all these crazy things you see on magazine covers, it does kind of stick out as being unique. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing with that is, of course, we have protein spaced out evenly through the day, because if you don't have available amino acids in your digestive tract and bloodstream, then your body has to start finding it in other places, which is your lean muscle tissue. So you become catabolic in that regard. So we're always fueling in that way. But the carbohydrates are all there to manipulate insulin responses. Insulin is really the most powerful anabolic hormone and anti-catabolic hormone in the body. So not only does it help support muscle growth, it actually fights off muscle damage. I mean, that's pretty much a damn miracle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can't get that anywhere else. But what we're doing with the healthy carbs on the lower end of the glycemic index or a lower glycemic load Uh, spectrum of carbohydrates is we're trying to get carbohydrates into the body to allow recovery and lots of other great functions that carbs do, but we're not stimulating an insulin response very much at all in those times. When we're training and we're having those really sugary and fun to eat kind of foods like the, uh, I use Skittles all the time or gummy bears or something like that. Yeah. We've been on on the Skittles. (laughs) Skittles Skittles are the best. Uh, It's, I like to drink a lot of water while I'm having the Skittles because it feels like it just turns it into multi-flavored Kool-Aid or something. (laughs) But uh, what that's doing is that it's eliciting a larger insulin response to give you all those incredible benefits of high insulin levels when you have all those carbohydrates in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So you're getting all the big benefits of insulin and away from that training time, we're basically priming you to become sensitive again to taking those higher glycemic index carbs Mm -hmm to get that response, make the most of your performance and recover as quickly as possible. Yeah. The, um, there's a, there's a Olympic rower 
in the UK who's really fam- uh, famous. Steve Redgrave, he won fuckloads of gold medals. Anyway, he became diabetic, type 2 diabetic, because he was basically manipulating that, that system, but he re- did it over and over and over and over again and just pretty much screwed himself over. So he'd, he'd, apparently he never tapered it, so he never um, increased the sensitivity outside of training time. So he was just... And obviously, rowers go through massively intensive bouts of aerobic exercise. Um, And then he was just smashing the sugar and the tins of tuna afterwards to kind of bolster the recovery. And and after about four or five years, um, just he was just wrecked. His insulin sensitivity was all over the place. And um, yeah, it took took him years and years and years to recover. But he became type 2 diabetic. And I mean, he won gold medals. But... uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. Um, I wonder if he didn't have some kind of underlying genetic issue there. Probably, as well. might yeah. Might predispose, predispose him to that kind of uh, deficit as far as his pancreas goes. But it, it can definitely happen. I mean, if you just eat super sugary things all the time, the insulin response just goes less and less mm. and less and less until there's no real benefit to it anymore. But when you expect someone at that intensity of training be capable of handling a lot more sugar and have more better insulin sensitivity with that amount of output because i've worked with a lot of a few endurance athletes who have to have quite a freaking fair bit of carbs just to keep right that's why i wondered about a genetic predisposition for it because it does seem kind of wild for that to happen to a high endurance athlete or high level endurance athlete yeah Mm -hmm. but seriously yeah one of the best ever so it's hard hard to uh, argue it (laughs) yeah um, I guess another thing I'd like to pick your brain about is, I guess, um, programming specific. Po- programming is always a popular, popular Everyone wants topic, to know about everyone. programming, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm always interested to, to know people's, uh, I guess, uh, approach to like the final phase coming into a, a competition, like the, 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 the accumulated fatigue, supercompensation, the, the testing, the peaking, the, the, the deload. Um, what are some of your, I guess approaches that you take with programming athletes or powerlifting meet? Well, I, I talked about the overreach a little mm. while ago going into competition, and that was usually done the third and second week out from the competition. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, the, the week of the competition is very, very light. I think I might have somebody hit a like an opener on a squat or a bench press once early in the week. And then the rest of the time, the intensity and the volume just tapers down mm. a lot just to make sure the recovery is there. We're able to refine that really well with all the athlete monitoring measures that we've done over the years. And the weeks before that ideally would be using something called eccentric accentuated loading or something like weight releasers. I guess you guys have seen those before. Yeah, I've, I've seen yeah. them. I've heard a lot, of, a lot about it. I've actually never used them. Yeah. Uh, well, they're kind of a pain in the butt because you, yeah. you hook them onto the bar and you go down. And then if the bar is tilted at all, one comes off at one time and the other one comes off later. Or sometimes you have terrible instances where one kicks off and you start back up, but the other one didn't kick off and just and mm. bar tips. But yeah. um you can, I, I actually did that same thing manually with my athlete in my dissertation case study <laughs> to where we were doing 100, 105, 110% of his bench press one rep max for doubles 
where he would lower it himself as controlled as possible, pause on the chest, and I would help lift and estimate the velocity to be like a 90% lift. So it never really stalled and he wasn't grinding. So he wasn't accumulating fatigue from fighting the super heavy weight on the way up, but he was getting this super competent or super maximal effect, lowering the weight on that eccentric phase that would overload the neural drive Mm -hmm. as well as create a stronger tension in the musculature and the muscle fibers is just one of the biggest stimulators for muscle adaptations in training. So you'd be using this to, increase the neuromuscular fatigue coming into a competition not necessarily to increase the fatigue specifically that is a byproduct of it but just for the actual stimulus of load mm-hmm. they're, they're a little bit different but they end up being right there together i'm trying to get his nervous system to really send signals harder than it ever has which puts more stress and tension in the muscle does all kinds of things for signaling hypertrophy and all kinds of different type two muscle fiber adaptations that you really get from an overload like that. So what there's part, no other way to get that specific load. So what, what, uh, what phase of the training are we doing? Are you doing this coming into the final weeks? Uh, the, so the, the peaking block I use for most people is about four weeks long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the introduction week is going usually around 80, maybe 85% of your one rep max on a few different lifts, practicing form, making sure the technique's good, and really just allowing recovery from the previous week, which is usually really hard. You go into the second week of the peaking phase, and we start adding in some super maximal overload type stuff, whether it's a reverse band squat or bench press. If somebody's there to do the manual overload, I try and implement that as much as possible when it's practical. And sometimes you just do it through volume if somebody's training by themselves. Uh, You can have people just do a ton of singles and have an overload effect that way as well. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the same, but it's the best case scenario for right then. That'll fly on my camera. (laughs) Um, And then the two weeks out, that's when everything gets the craziest because timing wise, it seems to work out the best following the taper from that point leading into competition. But that's when we were using 110% of his one rep max to overload the bench press. Could you do that to just, if you don't have the equipment, do that to eccentric load to pins? Or oh, that actually, it, it would be a bit different because you're not training a specific movement Speci- anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so when you're close enough or really close to competition, specificity is everything. So you don't want to start changing motor patterns and techniques at that point. Well, that's similar to what, I guess, Westside, they do reverse band. No, that's, that would, yes, no, that would they, take the they, load down the way down. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, they actually do every direction with band. I've seen them up, down, front, back, diagonal. It, <laughs> there's, there's no direction that they don't use them in. So mm. you're right, regardless. Mm. Yeah, I've never, um, yeah, I've never, never played with the idea. I guess it's something that's just happened. Uh, knowing enough about um i've always i i guess i guess i've come because i've never seen it in the i guess russian style training i mean like they go about five i've seen them go about five percent over with like maybe like a mm-hmm. like a block pull or a board press or um but they'll only go five percent more within the lower submaximal ranges so if we're doing like 80 percent for triples then i'll go 85 percent for triples of a 
off a board. So they didn't seem to do it as like at anywhere near as uh, higher intensity. So it's, I guess it's something I've never, never implemented. I've always taken the accumulation of volume and um, working within predictable right. ranges. But I am, I'm always been constantly open to keep trying new ideas. And that's definitely something I've been doing over the last you know, three or four years is really trying to implement a lot of new ideas. Yeah. Um, and that, that definitely shows as far as the Russian methodology, that really shows how much they deri derived from weightlifting because weightlifters yeah. overreach in the exact same way. It's usually very volume related. Mm -hmm. Or they'll do something like a really heavy clean pull, 120, 150%, something like that. Mm -hmm. I've definitely pulled away from that amount of volume. Um, yeah. It's freaking way too much. And um, um, except I found with the um, their bench press, like I tend to like, and I found pretty damn good results, especially with, especially with my women um, responding really well to three, four days a week of bench pressing. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a top 10 board and it was from top nine, all the girls had over a hundred kilo bench press and went all the way up to 100, 161. Um, nice. Yeah, she took, do you know Bev, Bev Francis? Oh yeah, she had the record here in Australia. Uh, she had the record here for thirty-five years in Australia, and one of my girls took uh, took her oh. record in 20, 2018. Yeah, and same thing. Like she, 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 rec she reckons she attributes it to benching so much, like three, four times a week. That's definitely one thing yeah. I found really, really well from the Russian style of program. Yeah, I can definitely see that, um, mm. especially when. Uh, from what I've seen in the research, there there's tons and tons and tons of studies that separate male and female in different training studies, and they they derive all the differences based on gender. But mm -hmm. if you actually look at the statistics and all everything that's collected, it has much much more to do with lean body mass and strength level. Mm -hmm. If you eliminate gender from the discussion entirely, mm. and you just look at those variables everything becomes very uh, linearly related. Mm -hmm. More lean body tissue that you have, the lean body mass, the stronger you usually are up to a certain point. Uh, one threshold we found for that is around a double body weight squat. Uh, up to that point, if you just train for hypertrophy, that's generally gonna give you more explosiveness, more absolute strength, better endurance, all kinds of things just like that. Mm -hmm. But once you pass that point, you're able to move your body at a much higher rate of force than a lot of other people, your ability to jump gets a lot better, but you can start doing specific training, more power oriented plyometrics and things like that. And it actually starts having a different effect because of the amount of force you're able to produce. Mm -hmm. So if you look at female bench pressers, which is a really good example of that, um, relative to body weight, especially when you consider the total amount of muscle that they have, normally females have smaller upper bodies. But if you equalize that with males who have the same size upper bodies, then you actually see a lot of the same trends and weaker people in those general groups benefit from a lot more volume in general. And that's usually why you see those recommendations for women, especially mm -hmm. that they can handle much higher training loads. But men who are the same strength and size can also handle the same training loads as well. Yeah, I've definitely found definitely found the same. Like my strong girls, especially the one that benched one one sixty. I, I train her like a dude. Like 
she had only like as my strong like my strong ones like I had, like nowhere near as much volume as she would originally started with um and probably only doing as much volume as probably not much more than i guess what i would be doing and still make you know significant um very significant progress um but yeah i found that quite interesting they kind of and they yeah as they as they get stronger you find yeah i found the same thing it's pretty well um so back to uh, i guess uh, probably want to still pick around a little bit more about those um final stages so would you uh, um of a competition are you finding different do you find different uh abilities to i guess peak recover and test with um um the male and female or just the differences between you know very elite and and not so so much in terms of when those are timed or are you still individualized based off those markers you're measuring? Uh, it's definitely the weaker the athlete, the less time they need to taper going into competition mm-hmm. because they just don't accumulate as much damage doing the same relative intensities as somebody that's a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, gender or sex doesn't matter either way. More neurological or muscular? You say neurologically or, or muscular because with 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 um those individuals i found like i i would with very some very strong athletes i would reduce the intensity earlier but keep the volume i found keeping the volume helped but if mm-hmm. i push the intensity too close to competition without dropping the volume if the volume was the same but the intensity was closer to the meat i found they performed worse are you talking about volume in terms of just sets and reps, or are you yeah, talking so if about like, the actual total? So if it's your volume within sets of reps and reps, if I maintain to about say two weeks, two weeks out, but I drop the intensity three weeks out, say mm-hmm. you know we're hitting maximal attempts about three weeks out. For some athletes, the really strong ones, I found that was a little bit better, dropping the intensity but keeping the volume, and then dropping the volume in the third week. Um, if mm-hmm. I put the intensity too close, I found they performed worse unless they were a newer newer athlete yeah well you can definitely see that in stronger athletes in general you can peak them farther out from competition because of that accumulated damage effect Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier Um, them lifting the same relative intensity versus somebody an intermediate or a beginner is going to have a completely different recovery curve Mm -hmm. uh, as far as them getting back to baseline and then hopefully that super compensation effect but if you look at the research from anigo mojica I think that's his correct first name. Uh, and Isserner as well. They both did research on tapering into competition throughout all kinds of different sports. A lot of it had to do with swimming. Mm-hmm. But they found very similar things. The more advanced people, you could have a much longer taper and have them recover and perform well versus a beginner who didn't need as much downtime between the peak intensities mm-hmm. leading up to competition. Would you say there's different things at play with... The recover that, that recovery side of things when dropping the intensity because I found if I also dropped volume, they still wouldn't perform as well. I had to keep that volume like at a decent, decent amount. Is it that that there's a sep- a separate a, a, a timing difference in recovery when it comes to, I guess, the nervous system and the muscular fatigue and or. Is there well, there are all like kinds that? of different taper shapes. If you look mm-hmm. at that research, you'll see all kinds of crazy designs that have their applications as far as getting an athlete ready for competition. You can have more of a linear decrease 
or you can have kind of an exponential decrease where you do something super, super heavy and then everything just basically crashes intensity and volume wise. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take as long between that peak and competition to have them super compensate and recover. But if you have more of a linear drop, like you're talking about where, you know, the highest and hardest uh, workouts intensity wise are three, maybe even four weeks out where you're just dropping things consistently down your athletes are still going to have a similar recovery rate it might be more individualized as far as the response goes one versus the other style Mm -hmm. but while you're dropping volumes hopefully your athletes are still lifting with maximal effort or intent so they're still going to be generating volume or not volume but force Mm -hmm. so that's really the key it's as long as they're still generating that maximum amount of force you're still going to be giving a good stimulus while they're able to recover going into competition. And that's really the important part. Mm, that's interesting. I'm definitely going to look at that a lot more. Cause I always uh, wanted to see, cause I'm still fairly, I've probably tried about five or six athletes now that's using velocity and um, I'm more of my advanced ones and trying to see, trying to see this, see that compensation effect and see what, how that would differ for each, how that would differ for each individual. It'll be uh, interesting to see uh, to see that more in action with those numbers and try and get them to hit some more um, maximal velocities at you know closer to comp without having to go crazy heavy all the time maybe. Right. Yeah. Mm. And the lighter the load, the less stressful the eccentric part will be in all your exercises. So you can still you know really explode with the lifts and have high velocities but your accumulated fatigue won't be as bad. Your chance of injury should go down. It's, it's a pretty conservative way to do it, mm-hmm. um, but it should still be able to work. It's just mm-hmm. another way to skin the same cat. Yeah. Um, what about you find with, what about um, older population? Older population? Yeah. It's still very related to uh, muscle mass, total muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Um, one interesting thing with older populations uh, I don't know if you guys have the, the phrase old man strength yeah, yep. over there. Yeah. Um, one really wild adaptation that happens over time when you get in your mid thirties, early forties, around that time, most of the time, uh, especially people that have exercised quite a bit, your connective tissue actually matures to a certain degree uh, where it becomes stiffer. There's less fluid that's in it and less what would it be collagen in there? I guess that's a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the force transfer, even if your muscle doesn't change and it's still just as strong and large, the force transfer is much more efficient when it goes through muscle contracting connective tissue to the joint, because it's, it's almost like pulling something with a strong rubber band versus pulling it with a chain. Mm-hmm. That force transfer right. is much more efficient when you pull it with a chain. Right. Yeah. So when the, the tendon on a muscle becomes much stiffer. The force transfer and the expression of it is actually much higher, even though the muscle didn't actually get stronger. So that's a lot of times is why you see people peaking in their powerlifting careers in their you know late thirties, early forties, if they've been able to avoid injury. How long does this adaptation take? Uh, well, it's, it's a natural thing. It, it really accumulates the same way for everyone it's not i don't think it's really a trained trait okay so it's not it's not so much an adaptation but just something that happens it's just something that naturally happens yeah oh cool interesting coming to my 30s right so well here's the uh, the downside of that it becomes much easier to tear those tendons because they're a little bit more brittle 
Yeah, I've definitely been tearing things a bit more lately. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you have to really manage your fatigue well to really be able to ride that out and get the most out of what you can without really getting injured. It's funny how when I started powerlifting a lot younger, like in my early 20s, how brutally stupid you could be and still just right. walk away every session perfectly <laughs> fine with more, mm. way more in the tank. And then I'll do something slightly stupid and tear a pec. You know, um, right. Right. I tore my pec recently, last, uh, late last year, like a 40 millimeter long pec tear, 40 millimeter deep and uh, a bicep tendon tear. And, um, and I've done it, I did it again, like the, but the other side this time, about three weeks ago, but nowhere near as, nowhere near as bad. And it's funny cause I've like, since last year, I've never torn a muscle, <laughs> you know, I've like fucked up joints, but <laughs> I've never torn a muscle. <laughs> now that seems to be something that's, uh, just occurring a little bit more frequently now. Right. That might so, be part of it. It's possible. Maybe. Yeah. Definitely. Um, some things I could be doing better. You definitely know. Yeah. Just you, you could start monitoring yourself. Mm. The same uh, type measures I was talking about in my dissertation. That mm. lets you know if you're in a fatigued state, your numbers are going to dip and you think, okay, well, maybe I should back off a little bit today and make sure I'm able to recover and get back to a, a better state to where I can perform in training. Mm. Oh, I've been using velocity. I've been using velocity. I'm actually interested to use to have a look at that grip. Look at some of that mm, monitoring yeah. grip. Yeah. Then I face I might have a look more into it. Have a, definitely have a look, lot more look into that. Yeah. So I was actually kind of sad because I had to retire from powerlifting at age 31. Uh, I won't be able to to use that old man strength in my powerlifting oh. career. What happened? But, uh, Oh, I was, I've just got a genetic joint disorder, uh, dysplasia, where my joints, instead of being a normal ball and socket that's restrictive of movement, my mm -hmm. socket is actually very open. Yep. So like my femur does this inside my hip joint. Oh, good. Because it's, it's very unstable. In my shoulders, I had seven shoulder dislocations when I was in high school. Wow. Uh, my, right, my right hip came out twice. And Jesus. It was one of those things that I had to deal with and really adjust my training for to work around and continue to progress. And by the time I was, you know, in my last competitions, I think I had five cortisone shots in both my hips in the last few years of it. Shit. So I was, you know, I tried to get ready for the WPO uh, world finals just a couple of years ago. And I wanted to do it without the shots and it was feeling okay until I got my squats back up into the 700s before I started adding equipment to the, the training cycle. We're just about in wraps. I was going over 700 again. And the next day I couldn't hardly walk. Mm -hmm. I looked like a 90 year old man and my joints just felt like they were crushed up gravel. Yeah. And I said, uh, this I've been numbing myself from those effects and I couldn't feel it. And I didn't know how much it really accumulated. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where if I keep doing this and I keep taking the cortisone shots, I'm basically going to cripple myself and I won't be able to, to coach effectively and, you know, play with kids and bend over and pick things up off the ground very well. So it was a quality of life decision. Yeah. I've definitely met quite a few people who have come to that, that path and they say the exact same thing. It's like, do I want to be able to play with my kids? Do I? Right. right. Just small things like that because it gets taken. You do. You do put on. You do. You do. Put, you do make yourself pretty numb. Pretty numb to the to the pain. 
I remember some of the stuff I definitely put myself self through. I'm a lot. I feel like I'm a lot smarter, smarter now. I back off pretty quick, and if I need to, and there's always, I always say, there's always more time. There's always more right, time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That you really have to find the uh, the approach that's long term sustainable. I use that phrase all the time, and I'm sure people get sick of hearing it, but that really is the key to reaching your goals. And when I really fell into that, it it became much less about being in love and excited for lifting a certain number. It was falling in love with the actual process of training yeah. and the lifestyle of it. And mm-hmm. once you, you let go of kind of the ego lifting and you fall in love with the process, the, the progress that you can make and the gains that you make, they start coming much more consistently. You don't have the big setbacks from injuries because you know, you're able to manage fatigue and, and things like that. You really pick your spots mm-hmm. and you don't push yourself over the edge quite as much or at least it reduces the chance of it and you'd be surprised how fast you accumulate increases in your list when you do that uh, i really had to step back my goal was to try and break a world record by the time i was 30 when i was i set that when i was 18 or so mm-hmm. and i was able to kind of fall in love with the process more than anything and i didn't really overreach very much in my training i just stayed consistent avoided injury and my joint issues were a big part of that. I had to learn how to do that properly or I just couldn't train. Mm-hmm. And I ended up breaking a world record at 24, which was ridiculous. It, it shouldn't have happened that soon. But when you train hard, you train consistently, and you avoid injury, you know, things really go a lot quicker than you think that they would as far as progress. Yeah, that is a hundred percent. And all the, my, my, myself included and all my athletes have just, uh, you can tell that attitude, that attitude switch going from that eager to, to still eager, just patient and happy with the small, small wins that they might get every now and then. And right. And just uh, going through it and not so you're, it. you're in a, you're in a terrific place with your experiences and like the muscle tears that you've had. And you know, what probably led to those things with fatigue onset and mm-hmm. not recovering, pushing a little harder, maybe, your ego got the better of you one day and you just mm-hmm. you went a little too heavy. We're all guilty of it. I was lucky I got away with it probably too many times and that was fair. Mm-hmm. But you're able to share that wisdom with your athletes now. And to me, that's the best thing about being a coach. You get to help people avoid the mistakes that you made and put them on a better path. Injuries definitely has made me a much better coach. There was a period about probably about four or five years ago um where i got injured and i was kind of out of action for like three years and it was one of those things where you just kept numbing yourself to the pain and a lot of this was actually post after doing so much of the russian style training um i pretty much hurt every joint you can i can think like (laughs) um like i had like i had to the point where i couldn't actually physically walk upstairs because of the amount of knee pain i would have you know i remember walking upstairs and just collapsing you know, because I couldn't, and then I'd still stupidly enough go and squat, you know, the next day if I needed to, because the program said, and, and I only cared about winning and, and, and all those things. And, um, turned out I had cracks in both my patellas and, um, um, but since, even since then, and had shoulder issues, wrist issues, I, uh, an, uh two annular, you know, an annular tear, disc bulge and all, all sorts of things. But, I've gotten over three years, I wised up a lot and fixed all those things and 
got on top of all of it and just completely changed, I guess, my coaching style, my approach to training and everything. And uh, even since then, even just everything about how I do, how I approach things with management of injury and, and recovery and all that has changed dramatically. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. And the cool thing about that, when you're, you're actually walking the walk as a coach, you not only know the process of what comes when you train certain ways and maybe the mistakes that you make along the way, you know what those things feel like. Mm-hmm. So you can talk to your athletes and say, are you feeling this? Are you feeling that? Is it tight here? Is it, you know, all these different sensations that they're most likely feeling going through the same things that you went through. Mm-hmm. And that's invaluable as far as, you know, being a good coach when you really understand that experience. And if you can pinpoint and actually call out something that your athlete is feeling when they haven't talked about it, but you see it and you know what it is, mm-hmm. then I think that does more for athlete and coach trust than anything. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Um, well, I think that covers a lot of things we wanted to, wanted to discuss. Is, um, decent session there. What, what have we got? An hour and 25 minutes nearly. Mm. <laughs> decent podcast. <laughs> um, well, we, we can keep going for another few hours if you guys want. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more, right? You got some topics you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm serving you guys and your listeners right now. So I'm all for it. Maybe if we uh, if we get together again in the future, your your listeners can tell us what they want to hear. Yeah, for sure. That's a great idea. Actually, yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for putting the time aside to come on our show, and um, I hope we can come up actually talk again sometime. Um, it's always good to talk to another coach and stre- uh, coach in strength strength sports um, to bounce ideas off and learn off and. And grow. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. election year over here if you haven't heard so it's 10 times what it should be can't get away from it (laughs) right it's a freaking reality show like it's literally televised everywhere we all know what's happening over there but no one knows what's happening now it it always surprises me when uh, i have clients that are across either pond and they're telling me more about my current events than i pay attention to here (laughs) yeah it's all over the news here it's probably for the best to be fair Mm. probably for the best (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.